Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Hello everyone and welcome in. I'm Bernard Hickey, the co-host of The Hoon. I'm Peter Bale, great to see you. Bernard, that was brilliant, Toreo. We've only had one lesson and we're basically fluent now. Bernard and I had a fabulous Toreo lesson the other day from a very nice Hoon listener who realised that our discussions of um, Correro, Kaipakehi and various other things were not what they should be. And that was brilliant, Bernard. I mean, it'll all stop once National's in, but that's fantastic. Good on you. <laughs> uh, no, my heart in my, it is fantastic to be here. And I thank you to Jamie, uh, a very generous and thoughtful subscriber to the Hoon. I don't think he realises we're going to be doing it about three times a week for the next four years, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's it's always good. And we will keep mixing it up with new things and learning. Our old brains, Peter, are becoming more... Um, My brain, brain's completely plastic. It's just a rather, you know, how you have that sense of being plastic and it's mobile and labile and, and, labile and everything. Unfortunately, mine seems to be made of Bakelite. Bakelite. <laughs> mine hardens over the years. Mm. Exactly. But it's a real, uh, it was really fun to spend some time with Jamie uh, learning some Motareo. And yeah, I'm very am, grateful. I'm, uh, it's got me fired up a bit to have another crack at doing it properly. I actually did a a year of Tereo Māori at um, Massey University as an agricultural economics. Of course you did. Yeah, when you were learning to be a socialist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't quite get there completely. I turned a bit libertarian for a decade or so. Did you? But I am uh, always interested in finding out more um, Nami Nui, Jamie. Great stuff. Now, this week is the last hoon before the election. And it's the last hoon before you move overseas. Yes, sort of, into the Hauraki Gulf. Mm. Um, Lynn and I are moving into a home on the island uh, out there in the Gulf, which is going to be a real pleasure. I have a special thing for listening to birds and being in nature and um, calming my um, Bakelite brain. <laughs> yeah, and you're perfectly placed to have the the, the new um, Robinson helicopter, your Kaka oh, yeah. One. The Kaka um, One. Yeah, <laughs> have a little, have a, you know, I think <laughs> our, my friend Utra said something, something like 57, I think it is, uh, helicopter pads have been, been approved on Waiheke. Now, Bernard, you went just, I digressed you slightly with the election. Are, are you saying we have to be careful what we say because Simon has to put out the podcast tomorrow? Is this what you're about to say to us? I, I, I think we're reasonably safe. I doubt that either of us or any of our guests today will be pitching to people to vote and the re recording being put up into um, the internets. But yes, we will try to avoid being too obviously um, political. Uh, and I'm sort of tempted to try and get this out reasonably early. Um, yeah, good idea. And I think we did we did we agree that we're going to do predictions at the end? I'm happy to. Um, predictions aren't so much the same as exhortations. So I think that's that's safe. No, exactly. Absolutely. Other than to vote, of course, which mm. I already have. Mm. Uh, Bernard, also, I um, uh, I, I put pe put virtual pen to virtual paper um, on mm. your site this week, and I was uh, partly because I was extremely offended by somebody who follows us and has been following us, and generally is very nice. But he accused me the other day of talking piffle 
on the um, on the, on the hood. That's a that's a feature, not a bug. I, <laughs> steady, steady. <laughs> so I went back and said to him, "It's it's surely it's top quality piffle." Yeah, exactly. So I did a piece for you this week about about media and where I think the how I think the media is influenced by talkback radio in New Zealand. Which um, when I listen to that woman Kerry Woodham, sometimes mm-hmm. occasionally when something goes wrong and I can't get the BBC or some other you know highbrow thing. Uh, or you know another history podcast. Jesus Christ! It is it is so gormless. It's absolutely you know, it's mind-numbingly mm. weird and gormless. I, I have little um, snippets when I sometimes get into an actual taxi. Yes, and it is quite a thing. There's a part of me that wants to turn the hoon into the anti Mike's minute every day. Mike Hosking puts oh, up yes. a column every day saying something mm. um, completely uh, tossed off his shoulder about... Tossed off is probably the right expression, actually, though. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and um, there's a part of me that wants to apply my charts and my carefully thought about uh, numbers to uh, dismantle his arguments every day. There's also a part of me that thinks life's too short. But the whole talkback thing is interesting. Your column, by the way, very successful and popular on oh, the Kaka. I'd, I'd recommend everyone read it and get involved in the comments because it told me a couple of interesting things I hadn't really thought about much. A, that Mike Hosking is getting nearly 600,000 viewers, sorry, listeners a day, yep. and that will be um, amplified, no doubt, by the things that go out onto the NZME website's including, by the way, a brand new <laughs> NZME website oh, called yes. News Talk Plus. Yep. I'm mostly irritated with that, Bernard, that they haven't rung me to be a columnist. <laughs> but then I, I, I saw that they had, uh, they've had they signed Chris Trotter, who was, um, as someone once said to me, mad, mad as a gum digger's dog. Um, so, <laughs> Just as friendly. <laughs> uh, I like Chris. I edited his columns for several years when I was the editor of The Independent. Mm. And there's a part of me that quite likes Chris. Oh, uh, no, me too. I've met him. I've mm, met mm. him. And, and he's, he's one of those people, uh, which is very common in journalism and in politics, who've been through a sort of 360-degree life of, you know, every, every – you know, a friend of mine has this expression. He says, "God, we're going to touch every every spot on the moral compass here." And I don't think it's so much on the moral compass, but he's he's, he's touched definitely touched all the points on the political compass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he does you know, have a, a corporate memory, if you like, of political history, which is very useful. Absolutely, and we all yeah we we do need people over twelve to do our to and but ha- having said you know being rude about about Mike Hosking is is kind of a national obsession, but. You know, I think, Except for the um, five hundred thousand people who tune in, yeah. well, exactly. And I think Steve Brownius has a point about um, about Hosking that he is an incredible pro, absolutely at the, at the yeah. thing that he's paid to do. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. um, no, speaking I, of hot I, air, speaking of hot air, there's Catherine. Oh, who is our dedicated hot air correspondent? Sorry, that's a rude hot air thing. expert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Catherine, as the climate correspondent for uh, the Kaka, it's uh, wonderful to have have had you. Uh, doing work with us in the last couple of months on the climate, even though (laughs) we just had an election debate which hardly mentioned it, including the election debate last night, the final one, the big one with lots of fireworks between Christopher Luxon and Chris Hipkins, which did not mention the climate once. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah, really extraordinary. I mean, they didn't get a chance to talk about their electric cars and their recycling. No, not even that. The deep and profound commitment. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we decided uh, to put together a piece which summarised the various party policies and came up with a few ideas of our own or ones that we thought were quite good from the the collection, which we put out as a Kaka project piece. 
Catherine, what's your overall impression of what we've seen in this election debate about the climate? Well, as far as the climate goes, I mean, obviously there's the absence of any good debate going on between the two major parties. And when you look through all of their policy statements as well, you find there's there's not really a lot of effort going into solving big problems, and not just climate for that matter, other big problems that we have aren't really getting getting talked about or solved. But any real ideas that are out there are coming from the minor parties on, on the fringes, you know, and there is some good stuff there, but it, it hasn't had as much of an airing as I feel like it should have. So, yeah, I was saying earlier, I, I think if there was anything we could have done that would have been nice, it would have been to take away some of the oxygen from those, from the two Chris's and put it out to some of the minor parties to actually talk about some but real... What is the what is the percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere? Because um, Winston Peters seems to have a fairly clear idea about what the percentage of carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere. Does he? And it's about... Well, you remember he got caught, Bernard, because I, I, I think he said it was 30 times less than it is. It was a, some ludicrous old man's, you know... <laughs> shaking thing. his fist at the yeah, sky. shaking his fist at the, <laughs> at the air. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it is, it is fairly sobering, shocking, but ultimately not surprising that both main parties have steered away from any policies that would challenge Ford Ranger Man to either get out of the Ford Ranger or buy an electric Ford Ranger Mm. or have to pay more for the Ford Ranger uh, or not be able to park the Ford Ranger on Ponsonby Road. I'm still concerned about this attacking Ford Rangers all the time. No, I'm I'm quite happy about (laughs) attacking Because it is Ford Ranger Nation. It is the the most popular new vehicle sold for over a decade. And unlike in other countries where, you know, they have other types of cars, this this and the Toyota Hilux have dominated our sales charts. It is a real thing. Yeah, but US sales are dominated by SUVs straight now. SUVs are where it's at. But this is an SUV. This is a double cab. I know. It's because we're all tradies. I read something this morning, and I can't. I'm just trying to remember which city it was. If it was Paris or or London or something, where they said that by 2030 they're not going to allow. Yes, it's Paris. Um, any right? Yeah, any internal combustion engined vehicles mm. into the city centre, so they'll have to park on the outskirts and walk. <laughs> They've already banned um, SUVs. I mean, I like this idea. Like, make them park on the outskirts and either have to walk in walk. or catch public transport to get the rest of the way. Yeah, I mean, you've got the double cab ute. Put the bike on the back. <laughs> you know, you've got your fancy Gosh. bike as well. The war against the car. Again, yet again, as Rishi Sunak has talked about in the UK, the war against the car. You know, not the car is car, Rishi, but is the Rishi war Sunak against the car. Watching the, watching the hoon. Is he commenting yep, on YouTube? Yep. But I, um, I, just to give you a slight irony about your fraud, so uh, some contractors, very nice, very, very nice and highly intelligent contractors who are specialists in geotech and slip control, came around to the the house next door to mine the other day, Bernard, which you've seen, where they're putting in, I think, the biggest seawall that's been put in since um, the last biggest seawall. And I have to admit that they came in a very nice brand new Ford Ranger. And I thought, oh, that's quite sexy. It does, you know, it was about up to my shoulder, and I thought, God, if I got a ladder, I could, I could have one of those. But it did seem to me to be moderately ironic that they were coming to fix yeah. one of the biggest slips in Auckland, which I'm very grateful for, coming in a Ford Ranger. This is the thing. All of these repairs and, and work that's going to be done is going to burn more fossil fuel, and we have to stop burning fossil fuel. It struck me that with, with the um, progression of, of the Greens this time in the election, I don't mean to preempt our election coverage, but it's, it's potentially quite interesting to think about if there were 
a left-leaning coalition or a central, central left coalition, and the Greens were in it, whether they might actually be much more influential than they have been historically. Do they? I mean, do the Greens actually have policies that you concur with? Oh, yeah. I actually, I spent a bit of time reading through their full policy document and thought, actually, there's a, a lot of things in here that I that I like the look of, that I concur with. So, yeah, I think it would be, it would certainly be interesting. And, and they've definitely, I mean, that's the balance that they, they've had to try and deal with, right, is, is if they're in, in the government and have the climate ministerial portfolio, then they can't kind of challenge yeah. some of the thinking from from outside. And and we've sort of benefited from having, because James Shaw does have a lot of deep technical knowledge about, about climate change issues and has been able to get some good things in place, but they've really lost their voice for a lot of years yeah. in terms of actually getting a, a, a stronger conversation going from the wings. One of the ironies is that because the Greens have been so anonymous, they're popular. Because if people actually mm. looked at their policies in the middle, they would go, ah, they're actually saying they want to reduce GDP, mm. which is actually what we discovered, Catherine, in looking through the policies, which you know may or may not be a good thing, but it's a thing. And, you know, a wealth tax is something that uh, crosses all sorts of red lines for a whole bunch mm. of red-blooded people. And it is, um, it's very interesting to see them uh, likely to be a significant part of the parliament. The most recent poll that we've just seen out today from Talbot Mills actually shows Labour and the Greens collectively ahead of National and Act. But of course, with... Uh, Christopher Luxon uh, having having swallowed the rat of someone who talked to <laughs> oh, him. Talk to people in New York about swallowing rats. Yeah, carry on. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, Chris Hipkins saying he won't talk to Winston. Essentially, we're going to have a situation where the least popular set of parties is probably going to be in government, just like we had in 2017 when National um, was outraged that even though they quote, won the election. They lost the election. So it is um, it is an interesting mm. one. I think uh, one of the things I sort of enjoyed doing, and I'm very keen to do it more often, is to pick out the policies that look, I think, more effective mm. at achieving some things and actually talk about them rather than the ones that the political commentators have said is deemed to be um, politically acceptable to talk about in public because it might actually make it into some sort of uh, actual parliament. It is important not to be completely negative while being really firm. So we also had, I think, the it's now definite, the, the hottest September, right? Yeah, uh, we had um, uh, the numbers through um, sort of last week, but confirmed this week that the temperature in September was a record for September and 0.5 degrees Celsius above the previous record, which I think I mentioned last time is like someone beating Usain Bolt's 100-meter record by a yep. second. Um, yeah. It is uh, off the charts notable, and there is lots of debate about what exactly is causing it, apart from the climate scientists saying that climate warming is contributing to the extremities of this rise in mm. temperature. There may be some factors driven by the removal of sulfur from fuel oil, also the Tongan eruption and um, the onset of El Nino, but the underlying cause is the burning of mm. fossil fuels. And the fact we've just had an election debate where the most pressing threat to human life in our lifetimes now is bearing down on us, and it mm. wasn't mentioned mm. once. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say the most positive thing I always say about the stuff is that at every step of the way, there are going to be choices, you know, no matter how badly or well things are going, there are always going to be choices and some of, some of those choices will make things better and some of them will make them actively worse. And our job is to try and figure out which of those two things, you know, any particular proposal is going to achieve. And off the top of my head, I would ban used and new imports of petrol and diesel cars by a a date, 2030, ensure that between now and then we have a massive increase in the quality of the uh, engines coming in, so they're not spewing so much stuff out and they're not quite so carbon dioxide intensive. One of the options that uh, Top put forward is a $1,500 credit for people to get electric Mm. bikes and bikes and buggies and that sort of thing. I would get NZTA to uh, make buggies legal. At the moment, it's illegal to import a a buggy, like a golf buggy that you would use on a road. Convert the main roads, um, just simply remove the car parks on these main roads, the Ponsonby roads, the New North roads, uh, the Adelaide roads. So this is a bloody, this is an agenda. This is a, so how am I going to get my 1984 right-hand, left-hand drive Renault here from Spain if you're going to ban it, for Christ's sake? But I did, just, just I did, I did once it. go, mm-hmm. Bernard, to, well, I am thinking about getting a Volkswagen Carmen gear for, it's on sale at the moment for $65,000. And then you put another $75,000 and put a Tesla battery into it. And I think that would be oh. pretty cool. But Bernard, I, I once went to a, to stayed a weekend in Alexander Graham Bell's house in a beachside place in Virginia and cars were banned. And the entire place. I didn't realise he was one of your contemporaries. No, yeah, no, I didn't say Alexander Graham Graham Bale. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hello, can you can you hear me through there? Can you hear me in the other room? Um, and uh, and the entire place was was filled with golf carts. And of course, being Americans, some of the golf carts were customised to look like Ferraris and Cadillacs and Porsches oh, and yeah, and tractors. Good. So it was a. You can still exactly. have fun with a golf cart. Now, speaking of issues that have been uh, sidelined from the election campaign. Thank you, Catherine. Lovely to have um, you on. We, ha- we have Professor Robert Patman on, and he has come up with a new word to me, which which is intermestic issues. Now, I suggested that he sounded like a urologist talking about intermestic, <laughs> but um, or, or, or we have intermestic disputes in, in my house when, when, when somebody's away overseas. But Robert, you, you did a really good piece this week about the issues oh, that were you. missing from the campaign. We, we're going to generally focus on on... Um, the New Zealand election towards the in the second half of the podcast, but I thought that was a really valuable thing, and it's an excellent segue from the issues that Catherine thinks are not being discussed. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and good afternoon, Peter and Bernard. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the the term intermestic, of course, is just a for our viewers and listeners, it's just a a crossover term between the domestic and the international, yep. and we are getting a proliferation of these sort of issues. Absolutely. And uh, I don't see that trend um, being reversed. And the article that you referred to, I just hit upon, or rather identified, is probably a better way of putting it, three such issues which are having a big effect on New Zealand, irrespective of how we vote in the Mm. election. And uh, one is, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its direct challenge to New Zealand's vision of a rules-based international order. Secondly, AUKUS has got very little attention during the election, but also has momentous consequences for New Zealand's Mm. redefined national identity based on uh, a a principled independent foreign policy, based on closer relationship with the Pacific, uh, based on 
I think, a redefined sense of nationality, which is inclusive of Maori and language and culture. So um, what, basically, you know, the question of whether we join the Anglosphere or not is, mm. is actually quite significant. And thirdly, the one that you've already touched on uh, with Catherine, um, climate change. Uh, the Greens have tried to, and I, I watched James Shaw, he did, I think, quite an effective job in the uh, debate amongst the minor parties in articulating the urgency of this issue. But uh, it's been disappointing because, in a sense, we are, as the IMF have pointed out, not only not meeting our obligations, uh, which are supposed to be, I think, by under called the Paris Climate Accord, which we mm. signed, uh, mm -hmm. we're supposed to be uh, reducing our emissions by 50% by 2030. Mm. Apparently, we're off track. And uh, that doesn't bode well for the much more ambitious commitment of basically being having zero carbon emissions by 2050. Robert, I, you, you saying that and thinking about it being discussed during the election, I just, I just had an image of of um, ostriches sticking their head into the sand, mm. and it suddenly occurred to me. I'm not sure whether mowers um, stuck their heads into the sand or not, were related enough to that do that, but but we we it is very hard in election campaigns to get people to think about the important things. And some before you came on, somebody mm. was saying, and of course once once. Uh, Cost of living issues come come out as an issue, then everything else goes out the window. One of our lovely subscribers, readers, um, groupies, David Coombs, asked if you and I would, or you, we, we could have take a quick look at Ukraine, um, the Ukraine situation. It's clear that Zelensky realizes that uh, he's in deep shit with um, Israel now dominating the headlines, and also we've seen some evidence of uh, somebody was talking to me last week about about the idea of a Russian Tet offensive. There's a bit of Quite aggressive Russian reclaiming of land or attempts to reclaim land. What shall we give people just a perspective on what we think is going on in Ukraine? Sure. Um, just a quick qualifying point on the cost of living thing. The, the those three points we just discussed actually do intersect with the Absolutely. cost of living thing. It's just that it, it's difficult to actually see the connection. But on the Ukraine thing, um, yes, uh, the Russians have started offensive. Apparently, they have suffered very, very heavy uh, losses. But uh, yes, uh, I, I, it's, it's a nice touch by Mr. Putin to offer to mediate between <laughs> Hamas He's and so Israel. Yeah. And uh, having, um, <laughs> he knows all about devastation and he knows about cities reduced to rubble and uh, so he's 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 offered, but uh, and the killing of children, yeah, the Ukraine, civilians. It, the, the yeah. thing, the yeah, attention has switched, but the war goes on, and I don't think uh, Michael McFall, the former U.S. ambassador, made this point recently. I don't think there's any sign, certainly that Mr. Putin's uh, information machine is making the case that oh, the West is now getting Ukraine fatigued, mm. but I think. Right, Michael McFall uh, has made the point he doesn't see any evidence of that on the ground. And the Germans have just made a big arms package mm. available to the Ukrainians. Which includes the Taurus long-range missile, according to David Coombs. Really? I didn't hear that. I heard that it includes uh, more Patriot yeah. anti-missile batteries. I, I think the Taurus would be a welcome addition, but th th there is initiative uh, to accelerate the um, use of F-16s, I think 11 countries are now involved in the training. Uh, so I don't actually see that the Europeans are going to back off this. I think they've realized that Ukraine is not simply 
the conflict in Ukraine is not confined to Ukraine. Mm. And the Americans have approved the Atakams, right? Yeah. Which is this extraordinary, I think it's 500 kilometers, does it go, go reach out to, or 380 or something? Yes, at least, I, I think. They will only get a few, though, Peter. Mm. That's my understanding. But as we've seen with other weapons, which are which are asked for and then sort of measured out, uh, that can lead to um, more and more being provided. Mm. But it takes a while. And and we, we also had, Robert, just a, quite an interesting thing with Finland this week. Of course, Finland's just joined NATO for the first time since yeah. the first time. And uh, there seems to be a, some suspicious activity which have put a hole in a gas pipeline between Finland and Lithuania, which is their primary connection to the rest of Europe. Mm. What the hell? Well, they, you know? the, the Russians, to their credit, did warn Finland that there would be consequences for them joining mm. uh, NATO. And they've also threatened Sweden along similar lines. So maybe that's one of the consequences. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 the thing about the Ukrainian conflict um, is that the Americans, uh, the, the danger here, I suppose, is whether the Europeans, if the Americans for various domestic reasons, cannot sustain this level of commitment to Ukraine. And with the conflict now between Israel and Hamas developing rapidly mm. uh, and perhaps bringing other actors in, uh, there may be, I mean, that may become an even more pertinent question that America gets, in the words of that great historian, Paul Kennedy, oh, uh, suffers from military overstretch. I doubt it because I think the American military industrial complex which seems to be doing rather well, actually, can probably cope. I, I thought you were about to quote that famous military historian, Yogi Berra. It's deja vu all over again. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting, though, um, you, you, we've obviously got uh, Russia, you know, while no one's watching too closely doing its thing. But the other thing that's happened without too much fanfare is that this week, Russia decided to reimpose capital controls because of the collapse of the ruble. And this is against the advice of its central bankers and the likes. So there was intense pressure on Russia's economy and, and yes. on its currency and its foreign reserves. Yes, it's able to sell oil. Um, the sanctions haven't really worked effectively. But it is taking a discount. And interestingly, because of the rise in oil prices, just a couple of weeks ago, it banned the export of diesel, i.e. it's got problems mm. refining and using mm. enough diesel for itself, let alone exporting it as it used to, to Europe. So the pressure is on uh, Russia. And uh, even though, you know, the world's attention is is in the Middle East right now, I, I, yeah. it's, it's not going away. Mm. Yes, yeah, so of course, there's all sorts of speculation and conspiracy theories that yeah. Russia may have had something to do with the timing of the attack to take the pressure off uh, Western support. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, let's be quite clear, and I think you made this very clear in your excellent piece, Peter, that it was a long-running conflict and it, it was just waiting to happen, really. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what I found fascinating, and I'd be very interested to hear your, you know, your perspectives as well, I think... While I understand the almost blank check response of the administration mm -hmm. in in Washington, particularly a year out before an election, I think the Americans are taking a considerable risk. And why I say that is because a groundswell of support for for the victim of this horrendous and appalling terror attack by Hamas uh, is generating a response which does not discriminate. Mm -hmm between those who orchestrated this appalling act 
and those who were just uh, happened to be in the same territory from which it was initiated. Now, the reason I say this is because one of the questions that I pondered immediately after the attack is to what extent was Hamas, if you like, representing the feelings of the population in Gaza. Now, it's, then I reflected on it, and it occurred to me that if the in, very sophisticated intelligence apparatus mm. of Israel was caught cold by this attack, uh, it was a huge surprise, a stunning surprise, the biggest the Israelis had experienced since mm. the Yom Kippur War of 1973. It's highly unlikely that Hamas shared its intention to attack Israel with the populations, yeah. Yeah. the civilian population Absolutely. of Gaza. So these are innocent people. And what we're witnessing now is a the looming humanitarian tragedy there. Yeah, well, what's what's also happened, Robert, since we've been on air, as it were, um, is that the um, uh, Israelis have issued a notice to the United Nations to help or to um, make sure that all civilians are moved from uh, Gaza City Four out million? to, to the, there's two and a half million to the south. Now, have so we, they're, looking, they're lifting the blockade. No, 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 to move. Well, exactly to the no, to the south of uh, Gaza. So you know you, you know there's Khan Yunus further south, which is another city in yeah. part of the strip. I mean, I, I made a point. Well, I hope it was a valid point in my spin-off thing earlier. Spin-off thing this week, not the one I've shared with the audience. That um, Gaza, Gaza, the Gaza Strip. Really, it's the Gaza City. Gaza Strip is about the yeah. size of a bit, bit bigger than Wellington, and yeah. Israel itself is about the size of the Waikato. So we're not talking about large areas here. And I, I, so this, you know, they they would appear to be going in. In the next twenty-four hours or so, they've they've made a twenty-four hour yeah. warning that the UN needs to help get rid of the people uh, from northern northern Gaza. But it's a bit cheeky having put people in Gaza under a seventeen-year-old block, a seventeen-year air, land, and sea blockade to ask for the UN, mm -hmm. whose budget of about was it five point yeah. two billion a year, uh, less than probably a few offices in the State Department. Um, it's very cheeky for them to say. Oh, could you move the population? No, no, it's it's more than cheeky. It's 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 an extremely diff and it may rebound. I mean, I think if if I could, just, one thing I saw as well today, which I'll try and put into the into the links on the YouTube, is an absolutely extraordinary Hamas promotional video of how they built tens of thousands of rockets. The work that they've gone on, it's like a sort of promotional video for a uh, industrial complex. And you have to wonder what could have been applied to civilian and farming and oh, industry yeah. in Gaza had it not been applied to this. Now, I, I think let's let's distort it. Can we just deal with some of the international aspects since we've got you on? We know what happens. We've seen what happens in previously to Gazan citizens who oppose Hamas. Yeah, It's also true that Hamas, is the apart from Israel, is the only democratically elected government in the Middle East. Yeah, but that was what, 2006, 2006. Yeah, there hasn't been too many of them. There hasn't been too many in the Palestinian they Authority been re either. But they and Iran have an, a near absolute horror of the idea of normalizations of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Middle East, right? Mm. So there are yeah. bigger forces, there's big forces at work here, as well as the historic oppression of Palestinians. And, yeah, I, and it's, yeah, the, yeah. it's the Hamas versus, I was just rereading something about Yasser Arafat today, because uh, you know, it's to do with this word terrorist, and we'll get onto that hopefully in a, in, a, in a moment from a media point of view. But you know, sometimes you have to bring people who've committed terrorist acts or acts of terror 
to the negotiating table, and we had Yasser Arafat at the White House with um, Yitzhak Rabin signing and agreeing the, the Oslo Accords, which, mm. which admittedly Yasser Arafat then completely fucked up by supporting Saddam during the Iraq War. Oh, yeah. But anyway, but you've got these deeper, deeper forces. It isn't just the historic uh, problems of Palestinians and and the unfairness of of Israel. It's a it's a war between as much between Hamas and the PLO and the Palestinian Authority as it is in a sense yes. between Hamas and because they're trying to claim the motivation and the and to be the true representatives of oppressed Palestinians, right? Yes, and Hamas point to the fact that the Fatah, uh, the uh, governing body in the Palestinian Authority, and of course the uh, derived uh, from the PLO. They have recognized Israel mm. and have ruled out violence. Uh, and uh, Hamas say, well, look, that's the conditions in the West Bank are appalling. What good has it done them? So uh, I think part of their appeal has been, you know, the idea that resistance. But, but I think also Hamas is completely unrealistic. Their idea of throwing Israel into the sea mm-hmm. and dismantling the Israeli state is, you know, it's just preposterous, and, and, and it's not going to work. And in my fear, uh, and I think this has been articulated by a lot of Israelis who have been critical of Mr. Netanyahu, that Hamas have effectively resurrected or <laughs> uh, pumped new life into the Netanyahu Absolutely. regime with their appalling tack. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think we should. I think that is really important. The Netanyahu factor in all this is incredibly important. It does mm. appear as though, and there's very good reports now. That um, Egypt warned the Isra- uh, Israeli government that ah. there was something coming. We know that Netanyahu, though, is an incredible performer, and I literally mean performer in a crisis like this. You're right that he he holds yep. a huge amount of responsibility for this, but he and and his ilk will also crap all over later all over the reservists who effectively went on strike. But is it is it going to be extended though to Iran, and is there going to be some sort of two-fronty thing where you've got a war with Hamas and also a, a war on the border with Lebanon. With Hezbollah, yes. Mm. Well, But I want to come back to international involvement because uh, my colleague, uh, Leon, Dr. Leon Goldsmith, wrote an excellent piece in the Herald today, and I commend it. And uh, Egypt's position in this is very interesting. Yes, they gave a vague warning three days before, but there is some ambiguity about Egypt's position in relation to this. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they were quite uncomfortable about some of the normalization going on between Israel and other Arab states because it began to downgrade the position of the military regime uh, in Cairo. Absolutely. The other thing is, where did Hamas get all these Iranian? How did these weapons get into Gaza? Mm. Now, where did they go into Gaza? I, I don't think they went through the part of uh, the blockade that was managed by Israel. No, Hi- uh, highly, un- highly part, unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, right. So then the question is, did Egypt notice these weapons being mm. yes. pushed in? Yes. I don't know. It's a sensitive issue, but I, I, I would recommend people have a look at that article. Um, Leon, has, uh, who, who's a Middle East specialist, has, has made some interesting observations there, suggesting there's a few outside actors that may have some motivations in this confrontation. Mm. Uh, which do not immediately hit the eye. And warning Israel in that public manner was could be cited as cover for um, Egypt's determination to remain crucial to, uh, in the eyes of the United States, 
to the security situation in the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, and I think we should make clear, Bernard's dying to come in, but let's just make clear, and I don't mean this just as a pro forma statement, but having immersed myself, and I've been quite exhausted by this this week because I, I stupidly stepped into a um, Twitter row um, defending the, the, the BBC's non-use of the word terrorist by their own reporters with John Simpson the other day, mm-hmm. which has led to an absolutely phenomenal barrage. You can have two ideas in the same about this. You can believe that terror was terror acts have been committed, that the behavior of uh, Hamas or other guerrillas in southern Israel is absolutely appalling, crimes against humanity, everything else. And you can then say mm-hmm. also you understand Israel's right and responsibility and understand to, to react. But then you have to understand also what we're seeing in Gaza now with civilians because it's such a such a packed place. And they have nowhere to go, and also the historic legacies and this on both sides. So, I just want to say that because anything we say can and will be taken out of context. But it is possible to hold more than one idea in your head at the time. Yeah, and what we do know from New Zealand's point of view, we in the past, I think 1985, New Zealand was the result was the victim of state-sponsored terrorism. So, non-state actors don't have a monopoly on terrorism. Mm-hmm. Sorry, which which what, which one are you talking about, Robert? Rainbow Warrior. The Rainbow Warrior. Oh, I see. Yeah, when the French agents yeah. blew up yeah. the Rainbow Warrior and killed somebody in the process, and that outraged many people in this country, quite rightly. But I'm, all I'm saying is that, you know, this term terrorism, it, it, it basically is sometimes used almost exclusively for that's non-state right. actors, and uh, I, I'm not sure that's the case. Okay, well, let's let's also, but that's a, actually, I might come down and I talked to you the other day about getting a degree based on our po- on our podcasts and my columns, <laughs> an honorary degree, because I was reading again, reading something about Yasser Arafat today and trying to think about this question. And there are many, many really good, thoughtful academic pieces about the uh, nexus or the difficulty of asymmetric war, and that non-state mm. actors for, for non-state actors, terror attacks. The, the weapon of terror is to some extent what they have available to them. And then, of course, you get, as you say, similar tactics, tactics deployed by, by nation states. But, you know, we have we know from the Good Friday Agreement that at some point that conversation has to happen. We know from the Oslo Accords that that was on the direction yeah. and then it was an Israeli, if arguably an Israeli terrorist who killed um, Yitzhak Rabin. You know, so it was. Well, that was a crucial a, a, development. An extremist, let's say. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm not bound by the BBC rules, but I do understand why they're there, absolutely. But it is this this idea of asymmetric war, it doesn't legitimize what happened in some of those um, kibbutz and villages, and and certainly not- Oh, no, no not, not, not at all. The, the, the killing of those appalling. people at the concert, which was literally a peace concert. One, there's been actually a particularly interesting thing, a little snippet, Robert, that- um, Allegedly, various members of Islamic Jihad and various other super extreme Palestinian groups uh, managed to go through with the Hamas soldiers, Hamas Hamas guerrillas, through because they hadn't expected to be quite so successful in breaking through. And I think there's a sort of certain amount of blame being put on these even more extreme people. But either way, it is an appalling scene. It is, and uh, it, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I, I do think that most of the world really sympathizes quite rightly uh, with the civilians and the the victims of this. And uh, I, I don't think there can be any condoning this appalling mm. act. And I think my, my concern is I would have been more encouraged 
if America reflected on its own experience of 9-11 when it declared a war on terror, which led it mm. led to an mm. illegal invasion of a country like Iraq, if it encouraged Israel to specifically target Hamas, mm. say, we are going to give you as much help as you need, uh, but you must uh, and should target the people who have masterminded this and orchestrated it and caused all this appalling civil civilian suffering, but ensuring... Yeah. That civilians who were not involved and had nothing to do with it, and all the journalists on the ground in Gaza have said that many Palestinians were stunned the rockets were being launched by Gaza, hitting Israel. I'm, I'm actually surprised, Robert, that also that we haven't seen more from the West Bank yet, which in a sense is a good sign, but yeah. almost anything could set it off. And we've seen very modest action on, on the Lebanon border. But they have taken what the Israeli government calls uh, security precautions yeah, absolutely. in the West Bank, which I mean, I think that means very, very tough yeah. control. Mm. But uh, is, is, is Netanyahu though, going to make good on his promise about changing the Middle East? And is there a, still a risk that uh, Israel has a go at Iran and the whole thing blows up across the Middle East rather than be confined to Gaza? Well, I think there's that risk because Hezbollah have already been involved in a skirmish with Israel. And Hezbollah is basically an extension mm. of Iran, in my view. It's an instrument of the Iranians and has been for quite a long time. So there is a real risk there, Bernard. And um, uh, as we know, one of the predictable things about war or conflict is it often defies all our expectations. Mm. And uh, it, it doesn't take much given the uh, it may not, you know, it may happen by miscalculation almost. Yeah, yeah. It's also it's also so interesting in this, and I and I think it is, you know, it's, it, there's a book being written as we as we speak in a sense because Netanyahu is himself deeply troubled by the idea of no, no, normalizing normalizing relations because it, you know the Saudis are not going to do it without some level of recognition of Palestinian statehood or a path to statehood, and that causes Netanyahu unbelievable problems with the settlers. And with the the right wing of his of his of his coalition, even though he's now got a sort of coalition of of um, a, a national saviour coalition in a sense temporarily for this for this attack. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges thrown out by this appalling crisis is basically countries like New Zealand do need to remind all concerned that there has to be. I mean, a military solution. There's the mili military power. The application of massive military power is not going to solve the, the political problem. Yeah. You could you could reduce the Gaza Strip to desert, as Mr. Netanyahu's threatened, and what would that achieve apart from alienating even more Palestinians and, if you like, setting in motion um, another round of violence down the road, maybe five or ten years? And that's the depressing thing about this. We... Uh, by all means, the people responsible for this terrorism need to be brought fully to account and uh, uh, dealt with. But there must be, a, 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 there must be, if you like, a political objective, a goal to try to find a pathway of reconciling Israel's desire, uh, understandable desire for security, and the Palestinians' long-held desire for self-determination mm -hmm. and statehood. And those two things have got to be reconciled 
that takes courage to articulate that because at the moment it's all about yep. revenge and vengeance. But that is not going to make Israel more secure. Robert, mm. I was really struck thinking about this, and again, we've talked about it a little bit offline in our regular, you know, gin conversations. When I gin you up, um, <laughs> it took you know Menachem Begin, one of the Stern Gang, described by the British occupying powers as a, as a terrorist organization, blew up the King David Hotel. It took him to yeah. make a lead on peace. It took Ariel Sharon, who presided over the Sabra and Shatila massacres in the um, camps in Beirut, to take the bold and courageous decision to withdraw from Gaza. It sometimes takes you know, a real hard man. I just, I'm not convinced that uh, Netanyahu is that hard man, although he would be the perfect no. kind of hard man to do it. I mean, I think the person, sort of person you were talking about was uh, Yitzhak Rabin, who was, uh, you know, who had fought against the Palestinians with great distinction from an Israeli point of view, was seen as a patriot, but reached the pragmatic decision that the Palestinians and the Israelis, there were good people of both sides, and they had to learn to live together peacefully and hopefully in a democratic, two democratic states. But uh, that takes a lot of courage, and he paid for it with his life. Yeah. Now, one of the things I, I want to address, which is probably the possibly the most dangerous thing for us to address in this in a sense, and we do have to go to New Zealand politics in a minute, but it actually applies here. Sure. Is this, so uh, it is horrifying to me, but I understand it, but I, uh, the, because we talk about the risks of collective punishment being carried out in Gaza, and collective punishment mm. is, a, is a war crime. It's it's turning, you know, Gaza into the, into the Warsaw Ghetto in a sense. Um, and of course, that comparison's also been made uh, with the attacks on, mm. on the, you know, southern, southern Israel. But the idea that you then start attacking or criticizing or hurting or uh, criticizing Jews and Israelis outside Israel is just extraordinary to me. And I think we have to guard against it very, very carefully. And one mm. of the things that I hadn't quite appreciated thinking about having heard it at various events and so on, the chant that you hear at Palestinian uh, uh, marches of from the, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall one day be free. Is almost literally word, almost word for word, out of the Hamas covenant, and and I think you know it's quite catchy, but the implications of it are quite horrifying. They are indeed, and uh, it, it's it, it, the, what I, what the, the tragedy of this situation is at the moment is that uh, there, if you like, the hard line or the more extremist voices have got the upper hand um, in the major participants in this conflict. And uh, that's not in any way justifying uh, the Hamas uh, attack, which is, as we said, just beyond the pale and needs to be dealt with. Um, but it's interesting to me that if you read and look at a number of Israeli publications, admittedly liberal ones, I think you mentioned this, Peter, uh, Haratz, mm. and uh, yep. some other publications are very, very critical of the Israeli Absolutely. government, both on strategic grounds, but also what they see as creating a climate mm. which has actually empowered Hamas within Absolutely. the Palestinian camp rather than diminished yeah. it. And it's also people from Shin Bet, you know, from former former heads of Mossad, former heads of security. Yeah. We we should probably move to the to New Zealand because I yeah. think we have an election tomorrow. And are you standing, Robert? No. <laughs> oh, what's what's your what's your prediction for, for the for the outcome tomorrow night? I think it's going to be a lot closer than the polls have suggested for much of the campaign. I think uh, Hipkins has actually shown himself to be, in terms of the debate, the debates I've watched, quite able and very quick. And I, I, I thought he 
yesterday, a lot of the media commentators thought it was desperation stuff by Hipkins. I thought Hipkins actually was assertive, but he probably needed to be, and I thought he did a pretty competent job uh, in a number of areas. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 we know there's up to seventeen percent of the population haven't made up their mind. That could be crucial. The dirt, certainly Labour's been rising, um, and National have been stagnating a little bit. I mean, one of the stories of this campaign is it not that the two major parties have not done particularly too well. Jesus, are you taking over our mm. podcast when I ask no, you one I simple short is, question? These are good points. These are good points. <laughs> I think the the one thing we can say is though there will be a deputy prime minister called Winston Peters at some point. What? In some way. Oh, I thought you were going to say with a prime minister called no. Chris. <laughs> well, yeah, well that's, that's true. true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Robert. It's lovely to see you. Thank you. Max, thanks so much for coming on. Max, you're you're our you're our segue into into New Zealand politics because Bernard and I are going to um, uh, get so pissed tonight that we wouldn't even dream of breaching the um, regulations of um, promoting no. election. But tomorrow. one of the things I was really keen to do after a sometimes dispiriting election campaign, where our politicians haven't talked about the things that we care about and we know there are problems and haven't, in the centre at least, provided solutions is that there are, there may be other ways to do democracy. And I saw, uh, Max, that uh, you've been doing a presentation this week on a trial for uh, a deliberative democracy, I suppose you could call it, in Wellington. Could you talk a bit more about this? This gave me hope. It, I was curious after the last two months of an election debate. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Brenda. Thanks for the chance to talk about it. Yeah, so Wellington City Council has been um, experimenting with this thing called a citizens' assembly, where the basic concept is you get a group of ordinary people, in this case about 40 people, and you select them so that they're exactly demographically representative of the city as a whole. So, you know, 50-50 male-female split, Māori and Pacifica representative people in there in proportion to their proportion of the Wellington population. So there are, there are many public, you know, they're, they're Wellington in a room, if you like, and then you set them loose on an important um, topic of, of public interest. And the idea here is to, you know, to bring citizens like really deeply into the heart of decision making. Uh, you know, so it's not so the stuff is sort of done with and by citizens rather than to them. So politics is more bottom up. Is sort of bringing the wisdom of the crowd to bear on, you know, um, important public issues and taking advantage of the fact that people may not be subject matter experts, but they're experts in their own lives. Uh, you know, and you're already getting a feel for what does the public actually want, you know, which you can only find out when you've got a representative group of people and they have to discuss the issues with each other. And this is a very, you know, deep and historically viable idea. Essentially, this is what a trial by a jury of your peers actually is that. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I understand you were a bit of a um, fly on the wall, is that right? And able to see whether this thing could work. Yeah, so so it happened. It's just happened over the last four Saturdays in Wellington, and I sat in on yeah pretty much every minute of it. Look, it, it was really interesting. I mean, it was a bit of an experiment. You know, Wellington hadn't really done one before, and they were asking the forty you know sort of ordinary Wellingtonians to take a view on what the council should do with its long term plan, which is sort of its ten year strategy. Only ten years, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it was it was sort of a tall order, and normally citizens' assemblies like sort of there's been this couple of famous ones in Ireland, which have been really influential. 
but they led to change on quite sort of defined issues like abortion reform and marriage equality. And, you know, the 10-year plan for a council that spends a billion dollars a year is pretty complex stuff. And they probably didn't have all the information they needed. I don't think the city council got it quite right. I don't think the city council understood exactly what the citizens Mm -hmm. needed. And so about halfway through, they sort of had to pivot from this idea that they could have basically sort of designed an alternative budget for Wellington for 10 years to coming up with recommendations which were more thematic. So sort of saying, well, we want to see greater emphasis on this. So they came up with about 10 recommendations which got consensus from the whole group and had been sort of tested and trialled and workshopped and refined. And they were things like saying, well, we want to see the council actively exploring alternative sources of revenue because mm. there's obviously only so much you can do with rates and borrowing. Uh, we want the council to put more emphasis on medium-density housing. Mm. But if it's got, you know, if there are like decrepit old buildings in Wellington that it owns, maybe they should be bold and maybe there should be green space mm. in their place because actually Wellingtonians are short of access to really good pocket parks in the city. They said very explicitly we want funding for really core NGOs like Rape Crisis and Wellington City Mission to be preserved. So they came up with recommendations which were really sensible. They've been tested. They've been the subject of debate. I think you could legitimately say, these are what well, all 200,000 Wellingtonians, mm. if you stuck them in a room and got them to debate things, this is probably what they would come up with. And the councillors received the recommendations and have said very beautiful things about them. So it's on them now to take them into account. So one of our, John, John Irving, one of our viewers said, uh, or listeners said, um, how, are the, how are the representatives chosen? You may feel you've actually covered that. And, and how, how, how might they be chosen in the future if you were to have a council of this kind or a, 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 an advisory body of this kind? So they're selected by an independent company that does this stuff professionally, and it's by what's called sortition. So 10,000 invites were sent out. Mm. About 800 people said, I'd be happy to take part. And then this independent private company selected them to be representative of the, of the city in demographic terms. Is, is there a risk here, though, that it's the framing of the choices that effectively funnel the um, the citizens into a particular uh, point of view, and it sounds like you know right from the front, um, someone in the finance department at the Wellington City Council said, "Well, you know, we don't have this extra revenue, we can't borrow, um, you can't talk about that, <laughs> and uh, go back and and come up with some fresh money for us." Yeah. Um, and and I wonder whether. The fundamental um, settings in our economy and the relationship between central and local government in which the core frames upon which you can make decisions are actually set outside the democratic process by, you know, uh, ratings agencies, debt strategists, and um, those who say, actually, our job is to reduce the size of government and a good old debt limit will do the job. And yeah, sure, you can play around in the middle, but those are the hard limits and you can't talk about those. Mm, those are sort of the bond vigilantes mm. um, uh, analysis. And I don't know. I mean, you know, bond vigilantes haven't stopped, you know, all the Scandies, you know, taxing, having high tax rates and having public sectors that, you know, take up 50% of GDP. I think, you know, I think you can do all sorts of things as long as you can raise the tax revenue. Um, yeah, look, I mean, the, the Citizens Assembly wasn't maybe, 
asked to examine sort of the absolute fundamental building blocks of anything, but actually it couldn't have. And already in a sense, I think its task was too wide, you know, with, with the long-term, it was very wide with the long-term plan. I think I don't think a citizens' assembly is, I mean, it's just banal, right? There's never a panacea. You know, it's just, it's a useful addition. I'd like to, I think, for the sort of democratic ecosystem, you know, we're too reliant on one thing, mm. which is parliaments and elected representatives doing things. What if we had a whole lot of other democratic forums that took on some of that decision-making work, whatever much more rich, a much richer, more vibrant mm. democratic system? No, but we should, we should, we need the talkback radio people to take control instead, actually. No! Max, may I ask you a question about this? Um, <laughs> I, I, I was struck listening to you, and, and, and I'm only being slightly facetious that, that I remember a session in The Young Ones where the, where the Rick with a silent P, Rick Mail character, says, let's, pay, let's raise a people's army and take control of the state. Um, Max, may I ask you a more general question about the election? Because we, we've got the permission from the audience, or some of them at least, to go on a couple more minutes um, before they go to the TVNZ news. And what is your sense or, or perception now of the state of the campaign the issues that you saw rise when we when we did the start of this and we had Catherine on talking about the um, climate. Climate hasn't really been discussed intelligently, it seems, and very little about foreign affairs. What what do you and you are an expert, of course, on inequality, which is not the same as the cost of living. So, how do you see the the state of the quality of debate? Well, some things have been quite profoundly absent from the debate. That's true, and climate change is the most glaring example of that. Um, I mean, a funny way I think inequality has had a decent working over because there's been a lot of debate about Nationals' plan to trim the welfare budget by $2 billion mm -hmm. and leave beneficiaries worse off than they would be under a Labour government. And we've had plenty of debate about tax as well, um, up to a point. I mean, and the fact there hasn't been more debate is just because Labour hasn't wanted to have it, and that's, that's on Labour. That's how it is. Um, look, I mean, my general take, just sort of quickly, is, and, and I wrote a piece on this um, for the spin-off a couple of weeks ago, you know, it's very striking. The country is very disgruntled. You know, almost no one thinks the country is going in the right direction. And that could have paved the way for massive, you know, sweeping right-wing change. But actually, the two main parties are hewing very close to the centre line. And so what I think that tells you is people are very disgruntled, but they actually don't want a profound change in direction. I think they just want someone more competent running the, the country. You know, it's a kind of a, what political science call a valence issue. It's not what's your policy. It's are you actually just going to do the things that you promised to do? And so it's just this desperate, disgruntled search for just clarity and certainty and some people who will actually deliver on their promises. And, and, and because it's a bit of a thing for me that I'm just, I, I want to know more about and understand better, how important do you think the rise of Maoridom and co-governance actually is uh, amongst the electorate? Is, is it just grumpy Pākehā as I think it is, or, or is, it a, is it part of that uncertainty and, that you describe, or unhappiness that you describe? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there was a poll done for stuff a little while back where it said that only about a quarter of the electorate wants more co-governance than we currently have, um, and, yeah, and a lot of people, you know, think there's too much. I mean, I'm personally in favour of co-governance, but I think Labour has got a bit out ahead of where the electorate is on these issues and hasn't hasn't wanted to front foot it either for fear of the backlash. So has done it, tried to bring some of it in sort of, you know, undercover. And so I think there is, I mean, in the bigger picture, all the polling evidence tells you that New Zealanders of all generations are getting more comfortable with the place of the Treaty of Waitangi in New Zealand law. 
but just at the moment, there is definitely a pushback. I think it's pretty significant. It's co-governance. People are, I don't agree with it, but people are uncomfortable with the use of, you know, Māori names for government departments. I think that's real. You know, National Party people say that comes up a lot on the campaign trail. But I, I think that discomfort is is real, definitely. Unfortunately, though, when you actually look at a poll that came out in May from Core Data, a thousand people, the question was asked, do you support um, co-governance or oppose it? And interestingly, those who said they completely or somewhat supported co-governance uh, added up to 88%, and there was only 7% who said that they did not support it at all. Now, often these things can be uh, framed or screwed in a certain way via the way the question's asked, which can change the result. But it struck me as I, I still think the anti-co-governance um, angle is quite a small proportion of New Zealand of, relative of Z- to ZB the, News Talk listeners. Yeah, well, 500,000 people are listening yeah. to News Talk ZB, but um, that's uh, not not the full majority of the population. And Max, population. W- without asking you to give you your opinion about your vote or anything at all like that, do, do you have a, uh, a prediction about how things might end up tomorrow night? No, no, I don't. I find it, I find it very hard to predict. Um, I mean, I, I suspect Robert was right, Robert Patton, when he said it's going to be quite close. Um, I mean, Labour, you know, have put on a late surge, but I think the thing that's going to hold them back probably is quite low turnout, mm-hmm. uh, unless there's something really extraordinary tomorrow. I mean, there will be a lot of people voting tomorrow because it's not 2020 where people were worried that they wouldn't, you know, get to the polling booth because of COVID. Uh, but I think turnout will be low, and that's always bad for the left. Um, I mean, but it may not change the maths all that much in the end, which is that everyone's relying on Winston, which is a banal point, but it may just be where, where, where we're at. And unfortunately, there is very bad weather forecast for Christchurch and Wellington tomorrow which isn't going to be great, particularly given that the turnout before Election Day has been lower than in previous the previous last two elections. What are we thinking about Top and Elam, about Raf Manji and Elam? Is that feasible? The one poll that is public says that this is going to be won by National and that both National and Labour are not stepping aside. Uh, yesterday, Raf said he didn't think that National and Labour were campaigning properly in Elam and that... Th- Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He thought mm-hmm. that either of them would have been happy for him to win. Oh, interesting. Uh, but when they spoke to National, in particular Chris Bishop, the campaign chair, he rubbished it and said that uh, he had rebuffed various attempts by RAF and Top to do a deal. And uh, Sarah Pallett, the current MP, a Labour MP, uh, uh, said essentially uh, to the question, uh, do you think Raf is right when he says he thinks he can win because you're not campaigning? And she said he wishes. And uh, both National and Labour have rejected the idea. They've yeah. done some sort of cup of tea deal. Okay. And I don't think at the moment it's likely he'll get up. Well, Max, thank you. Thank you very much. And you've given everybody watching, there's 137 people who aren't going switching over immediately to TVNZ. So thanks so much for that, for your very positive take on it. Thank you very much, Max. Lovely to see you again. And thank you for coming on to the show. Um, I'm actually looking forward to whatever you write about the um, the democracy experiment, um, if only to have some hope. Bernard, what's, <laughs> what's your forecast for, for tomorrow night? 
I think, apart from being absolutely knackered because you will have moved, moved house, house during yeah. the day. Um, I think uh, the winner is Winston and uh, the decisions that Christopher Luxon and Christopher Hipkins made much earlier in the campaign to A, on uh, um, Hipkins' part to not deal with Winston and mm-hmm. B, on Luxon's part to say he would deal with Winston, um, effectively not so much decided the election, but certainly screwed the scrum because at that point... Certainly screwed ACT Act, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, screwed ACT relative to to NZ First. Yeah, well, there's certainly some people who flipped back from ACT into New Zealand First, and um, it gave Winston relevance again and meant he instead of 3 or 4%, he's going to get 5 or 6%. Mm. And um, we are back where we've been since 1996. And for me, the most... Uh, frustrating, enraging, and difficult thing is that my daughters and other people's daughters and ah. sons are not represented in this result. Their problems are not being dealt with, and they will leave the country and say, you betrayed us, and we, as in the gerontocracy who have who, who win this election, We'll have nothing to come back at them with, um, and we'll end up watching our grandkids grow up on WhatsApp, or we join them unless yeah. we solve the problem, and we're nowhere near solving the problem. Well, it's funny you say that because the, the the person who accused me of talking piffle on this podcast, which I was very hurt by, is also the person who put up. An, I think it's an old green slogan, which is something like "Vote green, and your and your grandchildren will thank you for it." Uh, or don't vote green and your grandchildren won't. I mean, there is something that. Um, you can ask me about my prediction now, Bernard. Yes. What are you expecting, Peter? Well, I think it's not so much what I'm expecting as what as a prediction is mm. that, uh, well, a couple of things. Winston was apparently a very, to, in, all respects, in all respects, a very good foreign minister. I'm not sure New Zealand can currently have a good foreign minister who doesn't deal with climate uh, very mm. well as, as he hasn't during the campaign. But the... This idea of a coalition of chaos that that I think you know Luxon has been very effective on on getting out there, the and Ben Thomas, who I think which side has Ben Thomas previously worked on? Uh, he I, has worked for Chris Finlayson. Yeah, and, so he was yeah. he was noting that the rise in in the Greens, which we've talked about, I think very effectively on this show for a few weeks, uh, plus the rise of Te Pāti Māori, so could could create a kind of Labour Green uh, Te Pāti Māori coalition. And that made me also think that perhaps that would actually be a more effective and transparent co- coalition than the than the last six years or so, because the Maori caucus has been incredibly influential, understandably and, and in a sense rightly, but not very transparently. And if you've got to party Maori in there, including a couple of former Labour Labour people, of course, you might have a very a much more transparent approach um, to co governance and to to Hapua uh, mm. and all of that stuff. And with the Greens, my impression is, having said previously, I think that uh, I, I thought James Shaw was a bit of a wimp. He seems to have been, he seems to have found a really strong voice during the campaign of good sense. Like he's been the good sense broker. So I'm, mm. I'm not sure that's a prediction, but it's a really interesting idea to to actually flip the idea of a coalition of chaos onto its head. Because anything with that we have to negotiate with Winston is going to be rather chaotic, certainly in the negotiating. I, I do also think I remember that Patrick Smelly, our old friend, um, is quite a big fan, or has a has a grudging respect, let's say, for Shane um, 
Shane Jones. Yeah, Shane Jones, mm-hmm. you know, who is loquacious and blason, but you know, he 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 believes in what he's trying to do. So I just think it might be a slightly different coalition and that and that one of them might be a coalition for chaos, a coalition of chaos, but it won't be the one that Chris Luxon has been talking yeah. about. The only coalition of chaos we ever had was actually the first one in ninety six mm. to ninety nine, and the others since then have been meek and mild, and at least a couple of them involved Winston. I think at the moment that uh, the balance of probability says Winston joins National and Act, and they have a stable coalition government in which a lot of the things Labor has brought in the last three years are overturned. Yep. Interesting. We have a 20, 20% rise in house prices on Sunday. <sighs> yes. And, <laughs> and You just bought yours. Um, You're fine. I'm fine. And yep. 200,000 young people leave the country in the next three to six years because of this. And we will have no one to blame except ourselves. Jesus, but this is a, this is a council mm. of misery. No, I, I think it's time to call out a bunch of people who've been deeply selfish, ignorant, and... Um, and they're boomers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who have, have repeatedly voted to stop the future uh, having a future. Right. Oh, can, can I use that? Can I stop the future having a future? Now, may I just give you a, a, a skateboarding dog? But then I also mm. want to say something moderately serious at the end of it. So mm. um, we all know that New York has an incredible problem with rats. And uh, they've started to put their rubbish in bins rather than plastic bags. But there's a fantastic um, video and story of a guy driving to, driving from central New York, driving from Brooklyn to uh, upstate New York, and having a rat crawl out of his car and sit on his bonnet and ride with him to the wedding that he was going to. Rat like on. one of those sparrows on top of That's the right. rhinoceros. That's right. Yeah. Now, Great. The, the thing I do also want to say, um, and, and I don't mean to be sort of pious about this, but I think it has been a hell of a week. And uh, partly for some feedback that I got for the thing I did from Spinoff, which was particularly from some people from a progressive synagogue in Auckland, I'd just like to say Shabbat Shalom and uh, Juma Mubarak which is uh, to mark both holy days of today. It's really been a really tough week for everybody, I think, but particularly for people in those communities. And thanks. We'll talk next week about the election. Kanui te mihi ki a koutou e te whakapiri mai e mihi ana, e mihi ana, e mihi ana tēnei te mihi mahana ki a koutou. Kia ora, Peter. Ka pai. Bye-bye. We'll see you all next week.